Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Podcasts. In places across the country, many low-level crimes have effectively become legal. To discuss how life in Britain has deteriorated, I'm joined by the conservative writer, critic and psychiatrist, Theodore Darimple. How would you describe life in modern Britain? How would I describe my life or life in general? I suppose you mean life in general. Yes, life in general. Um, I, uh, well, I think it's pretty well infused with a kind of gloom and pessimism. On the other hand, of course, uh, I personally and lots of people I know have a perfectly uh, reasonable life. Uh, but I think there's this kind of gloom over the future uh, and the feeling that everything is degenerating uh, and has been degenerating for some time. That affects even people whose lives are perfectly satisfactory. Do you feel that on a basic level, people's lives in Britain has deteriorated, whether it comes to crime and a whole host of other issues? Well, it depends uh, from what date you uh, you want me to start. Uh, from the point of view of crime, I don't think there's any doubt that by comparison, say, with even the 1970s, uh, crime has risen enormously. We have no confidence in the police. We don't respect the police, and we're right not to respect the police. We feel that public services have deteriorated, educational levels are appallingly low, and our infrastructure has um, deteriorated. Our public servants uh, want to save the world, but they don't want to clear up the litter. Uh, so we feel that we are um, living in some kind of dictatorship of virtue, but the virtue is virtual virtue. It's not real virtue. And I know that you're in France at the moment. How do you think that our issues compare to that country? Well, in many ways, the one thing that is surprising is that the complaints are very similar. They complain about uh, security, they complain about the incompetence of the police, the laxity of the criminal justice system, the deterioration of uh, educational levels, and so on and so forth. And and again, there's good reason for for believing that they are right. However, they start at a much higher level. And in my belief, uh, France, and this might surprise some people, is a much less corrupt country than Britain. Corruption is at a much lower level. If by corruption you don't just mean money taken under the table, uh, of which there's, of course, quite a lot that was into that in Britain, but that at least the public services, even if they're very expensive, even if they're very bureaucratic, they do actually achieve something. I pay more or less the same local taxes in France, as I say, as I pay in England. Uh, but in England, uh, the roads are full of potholes. Uh, 
uh, nothing is looked after properly. There's a feeling that nobody cares about anything very much. Whereas in France, in large parts of France, not, of course, in the Bonnier, but in large parts of France, at least the administration looks after things reasonably well. And what do you think counts for that difference? Why, why is there a difference there? I think that the public servants have, in France, have some kind of idea that they are um, contributing uh, to the country and that they... It is the country that they're contributing to, whereas in Britain, uh, I don't know what they think they're contributing to other than uh, working towards their pension, um, but um, uh, they don't seem to have any larger any larger feeling or, or, or of the country. Um, and this could this could all change, of course. I mean, I'm not trying to make out that France is. Um, is a um, a perfect country, and in in, in certain one respect, it's probably worse, uh, and it's a very important respect. That is to say, the ghettoization of uh, the population is is very serious, uh, and it's a very serious. It's, it's a much worse problem than in Britain. Whatever problems we have uh, in that respect, they have them. Um, that those problems are much worse. Uh, but in most other things, I think things are better. And to give you some kind of indication of of uh, the level of intellectual and moral corruption. No doubt there's also financial corruption. One just has to compare the way the French uh, build a uh, high-speed train of the same length as HS2 at a seventh, I think about the seventh of the cost, and in about, well, we don't know that HS2 is ever going to be built, but probably in a quarter or a fifth the time. Recently on Oxford Street, there have been lots of videos going viral of the people going into shops and stealing things and just in general acting like a mob, I suppose. Do you think that this is representative of a wider cultural problem in Britain or was this a one-off um, thing that we can just sort of siphon off? Well, we're talking about 65 million people, so of course you were... One has to be careful about uh, tarring everybody with the same brush, but I think it is very much a a, a cultural problem. And the, and one of the things that is noticeable in France is that the cultural problems are much more uh, geographically uh, set apart from the rest of the population in Britain. They are um, uh, they have entered the core of a large part of the core of the population. So it doesn't surprise me. Of course, these people are probably no doubt inspired by similar scenes in uh, San Francisco and New York, particularly San Francisco. Um, and what we will find is that our criminal justice system will be completely incapable of dealing with it. So this is a, another sign of a kind of total degeneration of our, our public administration, even though uh, theoretically, in the abstract, it should be an easy question to deal with, problem to deal with. In response to this Oxford Street video and these reports around these, this criminality, um, and an, economist, an economist tweeted out, she tweeted, my take, invest in public swimming pools, well-run youth clubs, community centres, mental health programmes, summer activities, care for youth, cost of inaction is greater than the cost of action. 
How do you respond? How do you respond to this solution, as it were? Well, you'll forgive me, but I've heard it uh, many times before. It is a kind of uh, the ping pong table theory of um, human wickedness, and that if uh, we have enough ping pong tables, people won't take drugs or uh, do terrible things. I think it's ludicrous. I and uh, I mean, I have seen some of the. Uh, I remember going into these so-called youth clubs that were built during uh, the 1960s and 70s. Uh, construction of housing estates, and they were, they were actually more like uh, concrete bunkers, uh, and they were places where uh, drug dealers might safely deal. In fact, do you believe that we are a high trust society? Um, I don't know if you you could define that as well for viewers. Well, the idea that uh, we assume that people are reasonably benevolently disposed towards us, just as we are reasonably benevolently disposed to most of the people whom we meet, I think in large parts of the country that is uh, still the case. Because, of course, as I said, we are a population, what is it, 66 million. And uh, that in the town in which I live, for example, uh, in England, I have absolutely no fear. I trust my neighbours. Uh, we don't have a policeman, but it doesn't mean to say that I'm going to burgle my neighbour or my neighbour is going to burgle me, even if it were economically advantageous to one or the other of us to do so. So in that sense, we still do live in a high-trust, uh, or some of us, most of us, but live in a high-trust society. But there are also places where one doesn't live in a high-trust society. And there are places where, uh, for example, you don't look people in the eye because you're afraid of what they will conclude if you do. So I think our society is large enough for us not to be able to say either we do or we don't. But you essentially think that people's connections to their communities, to their neighbours, to themselves, to their nation has been severed in recent years. You, do you think that the investment that people have in the society around them has declined? And you mentioned earlier people, you know, the police officers or whoever, just taking their pensions. I mean, it's more about money than, I suppose, their belief in helping each other. Well, it's very clear to me that very uh, relatively few people, compared with, with France, actually, uh, take much pride in what they do. And insofar as taking a pride in what you do, even if it's not very highly paid, and even if it's not very skillful, is a sign. If that is a, it is a sign of uh, belonging to a, a society where, in in whose future, in whose present, you don't really believe. Then I think Britain is in a very bad way because it. Things are better in that respect. They're better in France, and in fact, they're better, I believe, everywhere I've been in uh, Western Europe and probably Eastern Europe too now. Do you blame the Conservative Party in part for this decline in people's pride in their work? Uh, yes, I, I do. And in fact, I actually um, blame Mrs Thatcher to some extent. Uh, I don't think she intended the consequences of what she did. But actually, she gave Ray. She uh, she found the British public service inefficient and left it corrupt and inefficient. And uh, 
she managed to convey to it that they are businessmen in the same same sense as someone who owns a commercial business as a businessman. And of course, uh, public services need a kind a, a different motivation from uh, from uh, businesses. Uh, and of course, it was seized upon by uh, Mr. Blair. Who saw? I, I don't know whether he actually thought about it, but he, he instinctively understood that it was the opportunity to create an, a nomenclature class. We have a nomenclature class, um, and that has grown larger and larger. And um, and I think that has had a devastating effect. So it started with Mrs. Thatcher, and it's got worse. And I don't see how easily we are going to uh, change that. To what extent do you think that migration, diversity and multiculturalism impact these issues that we're discussing? It's not a straightforward question. But the idea, I mean, we do seem to have the idea that until we were a multicultural society, uh, there was no culture in the country at all or no achievement or anything like that, which was completely absurd. Just as it's completely absurd that before the National Health Service, there were no, there were no uh, healthcare in Britain, uh, so it, it's a, uh, it's a kind of ideology, uh, which is false, and the people who promote it are actually the keenest to escape its consequences. I mean, the way that some activists and I suppose those on the left paint Britain before 1945, before Windrush, as you say, they say that we had uh, no culture, and they sort of paint a rather dystopian brutal Victorian view of Britain where uh, people, particularly poorer people, are sort of left by the wayside and sort of rich capitalists are all in it for themselves, etc. But when it comes to crime, and if you look at statistics in terms of burglary and things like this in the 1930s, it was rather different. So do you think that our views are distorted when looking at this pre, I suppose, immigration or pre-multicultural error in Britain? Yes, I mean, that's obviously the case. And if I may take the National Health Service as an example, it started in 1948. The moment, uh, I mean, contrary to, to the ideology, the moment the NHS was instituted, um, uh, the differences between um, the health of the richest and the poorest began to increase, not decrease. Furthermore, Britain began immediately, almost immediately, to fall behind other European countries as far as healthcare was concerned, because until 1939, when we had a very mixed service, uh, British healthcare was among the best in Western Europe. Now it's among the worst, if not the worst. I can't complain personally. I've been fortunate as I've had um, good treatment, and I'm pleased about that. It's not because the because of the NHS the way it's arranged. It's because most people uh, who work in healthcare try to do a good job under whatever system they are working. Uh, but uh, the British are now victims something that was essentially false uh, from the beginning. And the original I the original white paper about the, uh, the institution of a health service, the National Health Service, actually 
doesn't say that we had a bad health service before they got going on it. So it's this kind of false uh, historiography that is very important. And do you blame Mr Attlee for many of Britain's problems today? I think Mr Attlee was well-intentioned, unlike some of his successors. Um, Insofar as we have been saddled with an NHS which is unreformable, uh, but on the other hand, we we don't know what to do either about it, uh, then I suppose ultimately... uh, the answer must be yes. But I don't think this kind of historical blame is very constructive because the point about politics is, uh, and economics is, that wherever you're starting from, you're starting from here. You have to think about what you're going to do with your present problems. Um, I suppose I'm asking it so, out of an intellectual uh, curiosity rather than anything else. But, um, but because yeah, yes, well, I mean, I, you could say we uh, we took a uh, we took a wrong turn, an understandable wrong turn. I mean, I've read quite a lot. Of, for example, I'm quite interested in uh, Welsh literature in English, and um, and most of the Welsh writers were socialists, and they were very good people, and. When you re- read about the conditions in the mines, particularly in the Depression, but also before, uh, you can understand why they uh, were socialists. I don't think they were right in the abstract, but they were clearly not bad people. And and they felt in their bones that something terrible uh, was being done uh, to people, or at least they were living in a way that people should not be forced uh, to live. Uh, So uh, I don't blame people for for having made a mistake in that respect. But of course, it is important to recognize that, that, for example, the uh, institution of the NHS was a mistake. And of course, the NHS was a very different thing in the 40s than it is today. And the challenges that it has to face today is also, are also very different. Our population yes. makeup is is extraordinarily different, and what it, what peop, what it serves, the NHS, who it serves, and and its purpose is also expanded in a huge way. I mean, I think the NHS in the nineteen forties and early fifties was was quite minimal in terms of its um, support compared to today. And um, but I'm also curious about other, um, I suppose, cultural changes throughout the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties uh, through the seventies and eighties as well. Um, that impacted Britain. Peter Hitchens has written a book about this called The Abolition of Britain, really interesting book, where he basically describes a cultural revolution in Britain. Do you agree with his thesis? I don't know if you've read his book, but he basically says since 1945, Britain has been going through a kind of liberal cultural revolution, and that has caused so many of the problems that we face today. Well, there's the same analysis in France. For example, uh they say the same things as we say, that people can no longer read properly, they can no longer write properly, and so on and so forth. We don't know anything about the history of France any more than uh, British people uh, increasingly know nothing about British history. Uh, And insofar as, um, I suppose, the the educational system has changed so much, uh, that would probably uh, be a, a fair thing to say. Um, what has ha- what happened in Britain, I suppose, is that we saw that uh, a large 
part of the population was not being very well educated. That was clear. And therefore we decided that the easiest way to equalize things uh, was to deter to cause to deteriorate those parts where people were being well educated. It's much easier to equalize by deterioration than by improvement, by leveling down than leveling up. I mean, I hate that term leveling up, but uh, I'll use it in, in this instance. It's interesting because you talk about the French reaction being similar to the British. And Peter Hitchens, again, I'm just going to mention him, he's a conservative author, fantastic conservative author. And he, um, he very much calls himself a British Gaullist. And he is very critical of the American influence on, on Britain, particularly in the Second World War, where he describes us as being invaded by basically American GIs who came here and um, really influenced our culture. And um, throughout the 50s and 60s, we became a very Americanized society. And he makes this great and interesting um, comparison between the death of Winston Churchill in 1965 and the funeral of him and the death of Princess Diana in 1987 and the funeral of her, where where British people have sort of, um, they've lost their stoicism, they've lost their stiff upper lip, they've become very culturally different. And perhaps we've even um, lost almost what it was to be British. And do you, think that, do you think that that has accelerated in the last 20 years since Peter wrote that book? Well, you could, of course, take uh, the funeral of uh, the late Queen uh, as a counterexample, because that was much more dignified uh, than, um, uh, than that of Princess Diana. And that seemed to resemble more uh, the old uh, Britain. It is certainly true that we seem to have undergone a kind of, uh, I don't know how to put it, uh, psychological gestalt switch. We used to think that, for example, uh, understatement was good, and now we go in for overstatement. Uh, we used to think that uh, the stiff upper lip, holding yourself in, was a good thing. Now we are incontinently emotional. And that, of course, leads to shallowness. And you could actually, it is quite interesting to me anyway, that there was a very clear moment in British theatrical history uh, where this change took place. And that was the replacement of uh, Terence Rattigan uh, by the angry young men in uh, 1956. And Terence Rattigan was actually an extremely good playwright. Uh, And from the purely literary point of view, much better, in my opinion, uh, than his successors. But I think now, if you were to play some of his plays, uh, if you would put them on, uh, younger people wouldn't understand even what they were about, because a lot was implicit. Uh, and now everything has to be explicit and more than explicit. Uh, to give you one kind of uh, one kind of, to me, interesting example of change. Uh, the play The Deep Blue Sea, which was I think public, uh, first performed in 1952, uh, starts with uh, a scene in which a woman has tried to commit suicide. She's taken aspirin and she's tried to gas herself. And in those days you could gas yourself uh, with, uh, with gas. And the characters stand around discussing whether they will have to call the police because she has taken an overdose, because in those days, 
uh, attempting suicide, suicide and attempting suicide were crimes. Now, you would say, well, that, like most people would now say, isn't that terribly cruel and, uh, and even primitive? But once the, uh, the Suicide Act was passing, it was 1960 or 61 maybe, uh, the number of attempted suicides in, went up by three or four times in three years. So I suppose you could, I suppose some of your liberal friends uh, would argue that this was a, a pent-up demand for um, attempted suicide. But we have now reached the, and by attempted suicide, I mean a suicidal gesture. I don't mean that people really intended to commit suicides. And we have now reached the stage and have been at this stage for a very long time at which taking an overdose and self-harm of other kinds, but particularly taking overdoses, is twice as common a cause for emergency admission to hospital as heart attack. And it's not just the attempted suicide rate that has gone up, but also the number of Britons who, as I mentioned earlier, are reliant on antidepressants and therapy. Now, those are two very different things, and maybe we could tackle both of them in two separate questions. But let's start with antidepressants. I think around 8 million Brits are on antidepressants. Why do you think, we some, why do you think we've become so hooked on the drug? It's not in Britain alone. In the United States is exactly the same, and France is the same, and probably Germany. I don't know the figures in Germany, but Britain and uh, the United States and, and France are very similar. So this is a Western cultural phenomenon. And it is some years, in fact, many years, actually, since I've heard anybody claim to be unhappy. I've heard many people, thousands of people, in fact, claim to be depressed. I don't know about you, but do people say to you that they're unhappy? Never. I've, I'm sure I always hear depression as well. <laughs> exactly. Now, depression is supposed to be a medical condition, and I believe that in some cases it actually is. I mean, once you've seen real full full-going melancholia, it's very difficult to think of it any, as anything other than an illness, straight, straightforwardly an illness. Some people can die of it and so on and so forth. Uh, and they become, well, they're all kinds of signs. Uh, but by removing the word unhappy, what you do is turn all forms of dissatisfaction into uh, medical conditions. And it becomes the the duty of someone else, and a therapist or a doctor, particularly a doctor, uh, to make you happy again. Now, unhappiness is unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, a part of the human repertoire, part of being a human being. And paradoxically, if you believe it isn't, it makes it much worse. If you read uh, Dr. Johnson's Rasselius, the whole book is about how dissatisfaction is the permanent condition of mankind. The characters go in search of the perfect way of life. And every time they come across a new way of life, they think, isn't this wonderful? This is marvelous. This is how life should be lived. But before long, they realize that it's not wonderful 
and that there are drawbacks to it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And that this is, a, this is a kind of tragic dimension to human existence. There is no perfect human existence for man. Now, you might say, well, that's a very pessimistic view, but I don't think it is a very pessimistic view, because once you accept that, and I mean, I don't just mean accept it uh, intellectually, but also uh, accept it uh, emotionally. Then the fact that life is unsatisfactory at any given moment will not alarm you terribly. But if, on the contrary, you expect life to be a kind of permanent state of bliss, then any decline from that bliss will strike you as terrible. And, the, and of course, if you also believe that it's a medical condition not to to be walking around in a permanent state of bliss, then it's hardly surprising that you resort uh, to drugs or to to other forms of therapy. My uh, colleague, Dr. Colin Brewer, uh, put forward a law which says that misery, misery rises to meet the means available for its alleviation. And I would only alter that by saying uh, the alleged means of its alleviation, or means of alleged alleviation. But anyway, uh, if you if you have unreasonable expectations of life, then when they are not met, it's worse than when actually life does really deal you blows, as it will sooner or later. Do you think that people no longer want to take responsibility for the problems that they face? And they'd rather, and I'm not saying this in a sort of malicious way, but they'd rather blame other people or some sort of disease, as you say, depression is a good example of this, um, on why they're feeling so unhappy, rather than, let's say, going for a walk or going for a run or doing some exercise. And do you think that, I mean, which I think, by the way, is a great way to become happy if you're very unhappy in one, in one instance. But I think also that doctors perhaps... Uh, are too ready to, um, first of all, diagnose people with depression, and I don't know what your views are on this as well, and also to give people antidepressants as a solution to this. So if someone comes to them and say that, says that they're depressed, I know that, I know because I've spoken to friends about this, that many of the doctors will simply immediately say, well, you must have some antidepressants or you must try some anti-anxiety drugs or whatever. And actually, they, they, they could have had a very different response, which is, you know, go outside, enjoy the fresh air, eat healthier, do these other things before immediately resulting to these drugs. Yes, I have a certain uh, sympathy for uh, doctors because I'm a doctor myself, so obviously I'm going to defend doctors a little. 
And that is that uh, the expectations of patients are very important to doctors. So if people come into uh, a doctor's room expecting a uh, prescription, uh, then they will uh, go out with a prescription. Uh, and uh, doctors are under enormous pressure to prescribe. Furthermore, there is an inherent difficulty here, and that is that uh, there are no there are no biological markers between the kind of depression that I was talking about a little while ago, uh, real um, melancholia, which is very very serious. I don't know whether you you've heard nor seen descriptions of melancholia, but it's it is very very serious. Uh, I'll give you an example. I, uh, uh, you don't see cases like this much anymore, but a man uh, suffered from something called Cotard syndrome, and Cotard syndrome is a severe form of depression in which people get what are called nihilistic delusions, and they actually may think that they are entirely dead apart from some small part of uh, their anatomy. And this particular man believed that he was entirely dead, his body had rotted away, um, but his tip of the tip of his nose had um, survived. And uh, this is a very strange uh, state of mind. I think you agree. And it's rather difficult to actually enter into the world of someone who believes that. But they did exist. And they were treatable um, by medical means. The problem is that there is no biological marker between that kind of depression and much more trivial kinds of depression, like uh, uh, the depression that follows having an argument with uh, with someone close to you. Um, and it's not always possible to say, in, well, in fact, it's very rarely possible to say in advance whether someone will benefit or not from antidepressants. Most people, in my view, do not benefit from antidepressants except as a placebo effect. Not that a placebo effect is to be um, despised, because it's very important in practically all medicine. However, most people will have only a, a, um, a placebo effect. But you can't tell which person it is who's going to really to benefit from antidepressants. So I've had, I remember a case in particular where I thought it, it wouldn't work, but it did work. And quite clearly uh, in a non-placebo fashion. So there is and the doctor, of course, is much more worried about having one suicide than having 99 people taking a drug that they don't need, provided that drug isn't going to um, kill them. So there is some, if I put it like this, there is some defense of this over-prescription, which in part, or in large part actually, derives from the culture rather than from what doctors want to do. And certainly there are areas of Britain in which if the doctor doesn't do uh, what his patient wants, uh, he is in uh, danger of attack. Let's talk about the therapy culture, because this is the other 
uh, I suppose, aspect of depression in the modern world. And therapy has become very, very popular as a means to try and tackle people's issues and um, emotions, I suppose. Do you think that therapy is, in general, useful? And do you think that therapy can sometimes enables, enable people's bad habits? Because therapists, in general, won't push back against you if you say, you know, I'm doing X, Y, Z. They, they won't judge you upon that. They're merely, in many cases, there to confirm your own suspicions, a bit like doctors. Um, you know, if you go into a doctor's surgery and you're convinced you need this prescription, then it, that's more, more than likely to happen. So um, what's your view on therapy in 2023? Well, I think that there's been a superstition really ever since Freud. I mean, he first, he first, um, he first started it, and I have a, actually a rather low opinion of uh, Freud. Um, that for every, unha- uh, he didn't actually believe this himself, to be fair, but that for every uh, unhappiness, there is an equal and opposite technique, fundamentally something technical, uh, which will uh, resolve the unhappiness. And that is completely false. So, um, and my experience of people who've undergone psychoanalysis in particular, who are not very many because, of course, there's not very many people who can go five times a week for 15 years to talk about themselves at great cost. But uh, is that talking about themselves makes people self-obsessed without self-examination. So self-obsession, talking about yourself, is not the same as examining yourself. And examining yourself involves a kind of biographical understanding of yourself, which I don't think therapy actually assists, contrary to to what you might suppose. Um, and in fact, the um, biographical thought about oneself, just like historical thought, is something which seems to be on the decline. I know that you worked in prisons for many years, and this is one of your sort of um, backgrounds. I'm curious as to your view on whether prisoners, and I'm sure you've been asked this many times, whether prisoners are ultimately um, sort of rehabilitable or whether some individuals are doomed um, in their sort of character, as it were. And how does therapy and um, your ability as a sort of psychiatrist to change people, how does that sort of impact this rehabilitation process? Well, the first thing to say about rehabilitation is that it, it, rehabilitation makes things sound a bit like um, uh, moral physiotherapy, and I, I don't really believe in that. The fact is, of course, that most criminals rehabilitate themselves, whatever you do. Because if you look at the statistics of people, I'm talking about the kind of criminals who burgle or attack people and that kind of thing, if you look at the statistics, the number of people coming into prison, at least it was so the last time I looked, and I would be rather surprised if it had changed. They might have changed, everything. Um, uh, the, the, what you find is that there are very few people coming on a new charge, except for sex offenders, uh, but there are very few people coming in on a new charge to prison after the age of 39. And the rate of re- uh, I won't say reoffending, uh, but reconviction declines precipitately, uh, precipitously 
in the 30s of, of prisoners, even those who have committed many, many crimes. And this is so irrespective of what you do. So whether you try to do something for them or you don't try to do something for them, the result is the same. Now, I do believe that if you're going to lock people up, then it's civilized to try and do something for them. But this is not the same as saying that you, uh, that you will succeed. And the idea that, uh, that comes really from Erewhon, the novel by uh, Samuel Butler, criminals are really ill um, it is in my view entirely false and it comes from a kind of corruption a moral and intellectual corruption of partly brought about in the National Health Service that is that in this was in my experience and my experience is now a few good few years ago but in my experience we had a, a, a few not many but a few absolutely, uh, well, if I may use a non-technical expression, raving lunatics in prison who had committed their offences because they were actually uh, grossly psychotic and raving lunatics, in short. And the National Health Service was completely incapable of dealing with those expeditiously. And so to cover this scandal, because it is a scandal that... Uh, that we should be using, we should have closed our mental hospitals and put raving lunatics in prisons. To cover this scandal, it is pretended that 70% of prisoners have some kind of mental disorder. And of course, if 70% of uh, prisoners have mental disorder, it's not really surprising uh, that we can't deal with that number. But in fact, the scandal was couldn't deal even with a very small number of raving lunatics. And this was Enoch Powell, wasn't it, in the early, 30, uh, early 60s, sorry, when he was health minister, and he decided that people should have care in the community when they shut down the insane asylums, in which, by the way, there were lots of problems. I'm sure you know about all of that as well. Um, and it, a similar process happened in the United States where they shut down all of their asylums and um, and they they let these people out into the community, and and as you say, that not only in prisons but in the general community, there has been major problems as a result from this. Do you think that this policy? I mean, can we look at other countries where they didn't do that? I'm trying to think other examples, like in Germany, did they not do that, or other places where there's a sort of real branch? I don't know um, about Germany actually, mm. so I can't tell you, but. Uh, the idea that we should close down these enormous hospitals uh, was understandable because if you went into the back wards of these hospitals, uh, they were really terrible. There's no question about that. If you went in Yuki, you probably haven't, um, well, you wouldn't find the experience and you couldn't have had the experience because you're probably too young to have had the experience. But they were terrible and there were... There, the the back wards had beds with almost no space between them. The, the patients, some of whom have been there for 50, 60 years, often for not very good reasons. I mean, I remember see, having seen people, just about to remember, people, the women who had been sent to lunatic asylums for having had an, uh, a child out of wedlock. Um, 
Anyway, these were extremely reduced environments. There was a famous book called, um, what's it called? Sans Everything, uh, about the lives of these people. And I can remember uh, people walking like ghosts through, uh, through these hospitals, which were truly terrible in that respect. On the other hand, uh, they were, of course, often built in rather pleasant places, rather pleasant environments in outside cities which might themselves not have been in entirely pleasant. And they did form some kind of community. In fact, they were often the only real community for miles around. So in the name of community, they, they closed them down. But it wouldn't have been possible to keep them uh, going because uh, there's, how can I say, there wasn't the clientele to keep them going. Uh, so uh, it was entirely understandable that they should be closed. But it's easy, administratively, it's easy to do something like that play as a frozen institution. Uh, what's not so easy is to replace it by something adequate uh, uh, that that uh, would look after people uh, well. And um, I'm afraid uh, that's exactly what has happened in large parts of the country. And then there are cities, for example, where now, having closed down the old hospital, we have rebuilt psychiatric prisons, almost not of the same size, but of quite on quite a large scale. They're, they're, they're not called prisons, they're psychiatric hospitals. People are not allowed to leave. One issue I want to return to is this idea of taking personal responsibility in your life and how politicians view this concept of responsibility um, when it comes to dealing with crime. So I know that someone like Margaret Thatcher, who you've criticised in this interview, she very much believed in that conservative tradition that people should take responsibility for the problems in their lives, for the actions that they take, and very much that it isn't the problem of society or the issue of society as to why people commit crimes, which has become a very popular concept today. So if you look at this swimming pool issue that I mentioned earlier, you know, oh, these criminals, they only commit crimes because of poverty or because of issues of society or because of racism or because of sexism or because of some other external problem that everyone as a society is to blame for, rather than those individuals being to blame for the, the uh, consequences of their own actions. I just wonder whether you think that this age-old debate, which I think goes back all the way to the French Revolution and all of these, you know, you had those issues of the perfect human nature versus the very cynical traditional view of, um, of human nature from conservatives. Do you think that the modern Conservative Party has abandoned this concept of personal responsibility? Well, de facto, uh, yes, because nothing, uh, they haven't changed anything, I don't think. So the answer is yes. And uh, and suddenly, I don't know who it was, called our police uh, paramilitary social workers. And uh, I think that is about it. Um, so uh, the, the whole, it isn't just the Conservative Party, it's the whole society that is imbued with this kind of thing. And you could actually say it is a um, confirmation of what uh, G.K. Chesterton said in his book Orthodoxy, which I think was published in either 1909 or 1911. And what he said was that when 
Christianity uh, declined and really it's more or less disappeared. I mean, you couldn't possibly call uh, the Church of England a church anymore. Um, uh, and I say this as someone who has no religious belief, whatever. Uh, he said that once uh, uh, religion had declined, the vices would be set free, but so would the virtues. Not least, I mean, he didn't actually say this, but he said that they would run free and anarchically. And so, uh, and he was right, we have a kind of anarchic or incontinent compassion, such that to blame anyone for anyone, anything is um, to be harsh, to be cruel, to lack understanding, and so forth, to be, in short, judgmental. Uh, of course, to say that one shouldn't be judgmental is a judgment, well, leave that aside. And the old religious belief was that you could, that it was necessary to make a judgment, but it wasn't a, it was not a kind of final judgment because we are all, uh, if you like, sinners and we are all in need of compassion and understanding. But it's not a kind of incontinent and endless, un completely unconditional compassion. But uh, Christian compassion of a, of a secular kind has run, could say, has run wild, as uh, Chesterton predicted. Let's finish the interview by talking about the police and how they've become uh, woke. Now, you must have seen this video, probably, of this autistic 16-year-old girl who was arrested recently for accusing a police officer of looking like her lesbian grandmother, which is a fairly innocuous thing to say, um, particularly coming from um, this young girl who, as her mother rightly pointed out, you know, is autistic. Um, and the police arrested her and then later sort of backtracked. Do you think that this, again, is representative of a sort of, I suppose, as you, what do you call it, compassionate authoritarianism, um, where, you know... You, this young girl who clearly didn't deserve to be arrested was because she was accused of a hate crime. And um, this police officer seemed to believe that she was in the right. Morally, she was in the right. It was a very odd situation. Yes, I, I think people, police, uh, believe that they're there to, in, to be moral persons rather than to enforce the law within, of course, a certain morality. I mean, the, we don't want enforcement of law uh, without any kind of discretion, whatever. But if I may give an example of a place where I lived, uh, it's, uh, forgive me if it's 20 years ago, everything seems to be 20 years ago, at least in my life now. But anyway, um, we uh, I lived in a rather nice street with a very nice church in the centre. And... Uh, it was invaded by uh, prostitutes who were bussed in from another town about 15 miles away, nightly. And, um, <clears throat> and there were hotels not very far away and um, commercial travellers, if, if we allowed to call anybody a commercial traveller anymore. Anyway, they used to come and they were the, um, the customers, the clients. Um, of the, uh, you must call them sex work, sorry, I, I forgot them. Anyhow, 
My next-door neighbor but two uh, was a formidable lady, and uh, she didn't put up with this, and she started to group, and she started taking photographs of the clients and so on, sending uh, number plates to the owners of cars and so on. But she also went to the police. And uh, the local police uh, inspector said to her when she went to complain was, he said, uh, these are poor girls. I don't want to do anything, you know, their lives are terrible and so on. And it was true, they looked all completely drug-ridden and so on, and they didn't look very happy. And that was true. And she banged the table and said, that is not the law. And she insisted that the uh, policeman enforce the law. And uh, the policeman obviously looked in her eye and thought, this woman is trouble. If I don't do what she says, there's going to be trouble for me. And that's the only way now that you can really get the police to do anything. When my, uh, when, uh, in, uh, when we were moving, my wife, there was a skip in which we were trying things. And some people came, some young people came and, and set fire to it. And it was very dangerous. It could have set fire to the house. And my wife called the police. And she wanted to report it. I mean, really, she wanted the police to come, actually. But that, of course, is by getting a, a doctor's appointment in some areas. Anyway, she had a hell of a job getting them to take any notice and even to record it. And eventually, she was passed on by a telephonist to a policeman who recorded it. And about a quarter of an hour later, she had a telephone call from a very senior policeman who said that she was wasting valuable police time. And we didn't actually charge her with that. But this is very, very upsetting for someone who, after all, is the victim of what you could call an arson attack. To give you a, a, an example of the change in the police, uh, many years ago there was a terrible serial killer on the loose and uh, he would have struck again and two unarmed policemen recognized him and managed to deal with him. He had a gun and I think he actually used it but they managed to to arrest him and uh, there was a tremendous struggle and when they went to uh, they took him down to the station and they arrived there thinking that they were great heroes. And the um, the sergeant, the desk sergeant, said, you can't come in here like that. He said, put your tie on. And this is, of course, completely absurd uh, in an abstract way, but it does tell you something about the, the uh, pride and the standards that the police had and I don't think have now it's interesting because they, they seem overzealous in some ways and very sort of underzealous if that's a phrase in other ways because they, um, they go after people for their tweets but they don't sort of solve burglaries I think I was reading in the Telegraph recently that um, there are so many places many many places in Britain where basically burglaries are able are, are completely unsolved um, and it seems that 
many low-level crimes have been effectively decriminalised or become legal. And yet, so they seem so zealous on Twitter when people are saying allegedly offensive things about trans people. Why do you think there's such a disparity here? Well, I mean, I think one possible explanation, of course, is it's much easier, much less dangerous or hazardous to go after uh, someone who's tweeted something than uh, someone who's actually committed a, a serious crime. And burglary is a serious crime, despite the fact that our one of our former chief justices seemed seem to think it wasn't. Um, so uh, I have some sympathy with the police because they have enormous difficulties now in in in, in getting a conviction. I mean, they are they are tired. Their hands are tired, and they do in ten hours of paperwork to bring a case on, and something like that. And at the end of all this tremendous work. The person whom they've managed to uh, nail um, has no no real uh, punishment at all. So it's not really worth it. I mean, I remember I did once write an article about this, and I said, you know, how terrible it was that the police didn't go after burglars and so on, and they didn't arrest them and so on. And uh, a, um, a chief constable wrote in and said, well, you wouldn't want us to be spending our time doing the paperwork after an arrest, which actually would take um, possibly the rest of the policeman's shift. And it didn't seem to occur to him that the solution to this was possibly some kind of streamlining of the paperwork, which, of course, was not up to him. To be fair to him, it wasn't up to him to do that, but that he should be uh, pressuring authorities to do that didn't seem to occur to him. So that being the case, it's much better to go after, or much easier to go after someone who um, has said something disobliging about someone else. But it is very sinister. Uh, It's true that it's very sinister. Thank you very much, Theodore Dyrimple, for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.